Good morning, everybody. It's good to be with you. It's a long time since I've preached with a choir behind me, so if I get crazy, y'all get crazy with me, okay? Sound good? I am glad to be with you this morning. As Larry said, my name is Jack Blankenship. I am the campus minister for the Baptist Collegiate Ministry uh, for Winthrop and York Tech, and I want to say thank you to Northside for being such a... Um, historical and continuing supporter of collegiate ministry here in the Rock Hill area. I've been here for a little over two years now, going on two and a half years, and couldn't imagine doing anything else. The Lord has uh, smiled on me greatly to allow me to do college ministry. Um, my wife and I have four kids. My wife Carrie is here with me, and our four kids, they uh, they went and took care of some things at our church this morning and then came over with me, so I love having them when they come Come with me. Uh, Caleb is seven, Noah is five, Josiah is three, and then my little sugar is one. Her name is Eden, and uh, we, are, we are mighty blessed, and uh, I love my family. They help me do what it is God's called me to do. Um, I, we're going to get into the text this morning, but I, one of the things I want to share with you is why I'm so thankful that you um, and the churches of the South Carolina Baptist Convention support collegiate ministry. Right now in America, there are more people in undergraduate uh, college right now than ever have been in the, any time of, of, of history. There are more people undergraduate than ever time in history. And recent studies have shown that 70% of students who go to a youth group, when they graduate high school, they stop going to church. 85% of this generation, recent study shows, do not have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And so for me, when you look at that and you see that so many people are walking away and 85% of this generation doesn't have a relationship with Jesus, it says that that could be one of the largest mission fields in America right now. It's the college campus. Not only that, at the college campus is where the exchange of ideas take place. So people from all over the world are coming to our campuses. Here at Winthrop, we have over 200 students from across the world, some of which represent countries that are unreached people groups right here on our campus. And so we have the opportunity not only to connect with students who are believers and followers of Jesus who may be on the verge of walking away from the church to walk alongside them and walk alongside churches and encourage them to continue following Jesus, to remain steadfast. We have the opportunity to reach people from all over the world without even leaving Rock Hill. We don't have to go to the nations that way because God's brought them to us. So I want to say thank you so much for your uh, encouragement for your support, for your prayers. Um, it is a ministry that I'm very passionate about, and God's given me the privilege of being a part of it in my family. So I want to say thank you. One of my greatest joys in being a campus minister is to be able to disciple students. I love going and meeting in the student center with students and sitting with them and discipling them, going through a book of the Bible, talking about what God's doing in their life. And one of the things that I find working with students is a lot of times as you start this discipling process, they're there, they're okay with it, but there's so much other stuff going on in their life that the Bible and Jesus and church, that's just kind of something that they do. But what's really important is all the other stuff. And they've got tests, they've got papers, they've got to pick a major, they've got to figure out where they're going to get uh, their next classes. I mean, all these kind of things are going on. Then all the activities and stuff you learn about college. And it seems like 
they just kind of make a little bit of time for church stuff or for God or for Jesus. And my hopes is that as, as we come alongside and help disciple them, we help them to see that that which they may be relegating to secondary or third place in their life actually should be primary. But let's just be honest for just a second. That doesn't just happen with college students, does it? It happens with a lot of us. You see, for a lot of us, we have a lot of things going on in life. And unfortunately, our relationship with Jesus, because it's not as pressing on us, because it doesn't have a deadline, because it does have something that's due, sometimes it can kind of get pushed to the side. And it becomes something that we just do or routine that we go through. But it's not new. It's not just because we live in America. Actually, this is something that's played people for as long as history has been around. This morning, we're going to look at the book of Haggai. Now, I don't know if you have ever heard a sermon from the book of Haggai. It is a book in the Bible. Some of you are thinking I'm making that up. I'm not making that up. It is about, uh, about right there. So uh, you go, it's right before you, if you're in the New Testament, just go back a couple of books, uh, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi, then you get into the New Testament. So it's just three books before the, uh, the New Testament, but we're in the book of Haggai this morning. We're going to be in Haggai chapter 1, uh, verses 1 through 11, and my hopes is that this morning that God will encourage you as he's been encouraging me, that we will all let the gospel be the center of our life. That the message that Jesus has come and conquered death, that he has died for us and then raised from the dead, giving us hope, giving us a future, will not be something that we just celebrate on Easter, will not be something that we just talk about when we go to Sunday school, but that it will so drive down deep into the depths of our hearts that we will live continually for Jesus above everything else, that it'll affect the way we work, that it'll affect the way we spend our money, that it'll affect the way that we spend our time on Saturday, it'll affect the way that we talk to our family. It will be everything because if the gospel is true, There's nothing more important than it. And if that's the case, our lives need to reflect that. And we're going to go to the book of Haggai to see how God tells us we should do that. So what I'd like to do is I'd like to pray, and then we're going to read the passage, and I'll give you a little background so we know what's going on. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this group of believers who love Jesus and who desire to follow after you and your word. I pray for them that they would strengthen and encourage each other. I pray that your name would be exalted in this community because of what you're doing in amongst the people here. I thank you for their leadership. I thank you for the opportunity to stand before you. Um, And Lord, I pray that as we open your word, it'll be your word that goes forth. Uh, In and of myself, Lord, I've got nothing good to say, but your word is highly profitable. You tell us that it's more precious than silver, it's sweeter than honey, and better than much fine gold. So Lord, we pray that your word would speak to us this morning and change us and drive us forward to live, love, and declare the gospel. It's in your precious name we pray, amen. Now, many of us haven't heard of the book of Haggai, so you probably don't even know what's going on in the book of Haggai. So let me give you a little bit of background, a little bit of introduction before we get into reading the text. Because I think if we do this, it'll make a little bit more sense to you. Because if we just pick up in Haggai, you have no idea what's going on. Probably the main focus of the book of Haggai is the temple. Now, David had a desire to build a temple for God. 
God sent the prophet to him and said, you're not going to build a house for God. God's going to build a house for you. And one of your sons is going to sit on the throne forever. So Solomon is born and Solomon builds the temple. And the reader is reading this thinking Solomon's going to be the guy who's going to sit on the throne forever. Well, if you read Solomon's life story, you realize real quick that this guy is not the one we want representing us. I mean, this is, you know, 700 wives. He goes down to Egypt to buy horses like he's not supposed to. He does all kinds of things that he's not supposed to. And his heart turns from God. So this temple has been built. The worship of God is going place. But the king is not the one they're waiting for. And it gets even worse when his son takes the throne. His son starts making decisions that literally splits the country in two. The ten northern tribes just turn away from the, the kingship. The Benjamin and Judah are still right there together. And then God brings about the judgment that he said he would bring about when his people didn't follow him. Even in the midst of all this, there's this succession of kings who come up who do more to turn the people away from God than they do to turn the people to God. And there's bright spots every now and then, but what we find is that the people are continually turning away from God. And what God does is he fulfills the promises that he gave at the end of Deuteronomy. That they would have blessings when they were obedient, but there would be curses on them when they were disobedient. And God brings the Assyrians, and they come in, and they conquer the, the ten northern tribes. And then he brings the Babylonians in, and they conquer Jerusalem. And in, in a very dark moment, Nebuchadnezzar comes in, and he besieges Jerusalem. And one of the worst things, he actually goes to the temple, robs it of everything that's in there, and destroys it. And then takes the entire group of those two people from Jerusalem, Judah and Benjamin, takes them into captivity 900 miles away. It is, would be as if all the inhabitants of York County were captured and they took us all to Kansas City, Missouri. That's like what it would be like, picking us up and moving us. And so now the people are in exile the temple has been destroyed. The temple, the visible representation of God's presence with them has been destroyed. The place where God said, you will worship here, you will offer sacrifices here, you will come before me here. It's gone. It's devastated. They're prisoners of war. And yet God is not silent and he sends his prophets and say, you're going to go back. Fast forward 70 years and the king of Persia comes in and captures Babylon. And through a significant turn of events... One thing leads to another, and this pagan king does something interesting. He sends all the exiles back to Jerusalem. You know what he tells them to do? Rebuild the temple. And then you know what he does? He gives them all the money to rebuild the temple. That's the kind of stuff God does. That's the kind of stuff that God does. He uses a pagan king to command his people to go back, rebuild the temple so that they can start worshiping God, and then he gives them all the money and all the gold and everything they need and letters so they can rebuild the temple. And so you would think after this, you go and you're going to see a picture of the people and they're going to go back and they're going to have rebuilt this temple. Well, they got there, they laid the foundation, they built the altar, everything was ready, they offered sacrifices, things were great, and a little bit of persecution arose. So people in the area started pushing back against them. And these people who had been in exile, who had seen God turn the heart of this king so that they could rebuild the temple, decided it really wasn't worth it. That's where we pick up in the book of Haggai. Fifteen years after they laid the foundation and built the altar... That's where we pick up. So let's read Haggai chapter 1 in verses 1 through 11. 
In the second year of Darius the king, the sixth month on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Thus says the Lord of hosts, These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up in the hills and bring wood and build the house that I might take pleasure in it and that I might be glorified, says the Lord of God. And says the Lord, you looked for much and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why? Declares the Lord of hosts. Because of my house that lies in ruins while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore, the heavens above have withheld the dew, and the earth has withheld its produce, and I have called for a drought on the land and hills on the grain, the new wine and the oil, on what the ground brings forth, on man and beast, and on all their labors. So what we find here is that the people had gone, and they were building their own houses, and they had not built the temple. And God sends Haggai the prophets. There's two things I want us to learn this morning. Two things I want to pull out of this text. First is this. Sin drives us to be self-centered. Sin drives us to be self-centered. I think it was Martin Luther who said that we're born curved in on ourselves. So our sinfulness, even as we're born, we, we are the center of the universe and not God. And our sin drives us that way. God sends Haggai to two people. Zerubbabel who's the governor. He is the descendant to the throne. He should be the king, but because they're still under Persian rule, he's just the governor. And Joshua, the high priest, he's the one who oversees the spiritual life of the people. These two people should be leading the people to rebuild the temple and set up what God has done. And he sends them there and he says, these people say the time's not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Now notice this is not a friendly message. You notice what God didn't say? My people, my beloved, the ones that I care for. What does God say? These people. You know, it's kind of like when you got kids. You know, there's sometimes I come home from uh, having been at the collegiate ministry. Like I said, we got four kids, and uh, my wife homeschools our oldest. And uh, sometimes I come home in the afternoon, and my kids have uh, had a very rough day. You know, I know at that point of time when it's my children have done a lot that day, my wife is not happy. And you kind of get the same sense here. God says, these people, these people say it's not yet time to build the house of the Lord. You know, it's not just that they weren't working on the temple. In verse 4, God says, is it time for you yourselves to live in paneled houses while my house lies in ruins? Now, this idea of paneled houses, it was an interior wood paneling. Now, I know many of you remember paneling from the 70s, and that was like, that was the thing then, not so much the thing now. But the idea of wood paneling inside a house at this point in time, this was expensive. This was nice. This was top notch. Here's what God says. You're so busy building your house. Fixing it up and, 
and devoting all your time and money and effort and energy, you are building all of that. The entire time, the temple is sitting over there in ruins. And you care nothing about it. Notice, God didn't say, you should be living in the streets while my temple is, is not built. God doesn't say that. God says, you're sitting here, you're living in these paneled houses, and you're worried all about yourself, but you're not even considering that the temple hasn't been rebuilt. You know, the very nature of sin is that we choose our desires over God's desires. Because we believe that our desires will fulfill in a way that God's desires won't. But God calls us to him and he says, you know what? Go and do this. So what is God's message? God's message is consider your ways. Literally, it means to put it on your heart. Not just think about it. God doesn't want them just to feel guilty about it. God's not putting a guilt trip on them. What he's saying is dig down deep. Understand what you're doing. You're now saying that my things are less important than your things. You know, I find myself doing this very thing many times in my life. You know, and it usually goes a little something like this. I'm really going to devote myself to Jesus. or I'm really going to start following Jesus after blank. You know, so it's kind of that thing. You know, once I graduate from high school, we'll get into college Things are going to be great. I'm really going to start following Jesus. But then it's like, well, okay. Once I graduate from college, then I'm going to get married. And once I get married, it's going to be easy to follow Jesus. Oh, okay. All right. Now, once I got married, it's, it's really once we start having kids. Because then once we start having kids, you know, things are really going to settle down. All the stuff we did as, you know, a young married couple is not going to be there. So once I start having kids, then I'm really going to start following Jesus. Then you have kids and realize you have no time. So it's, okay, after the kids get out of the house, I'll start following Jesus. Or after, after, after the grandkids get a little older. Or after we retire. Or after you're sitting on your bed at 90 years old and you realize you never really started following Jesus. Because the fact of the matter is, if you're always waiting until after something else has been done, that something else is more important to us than God. And there's always something else. Or I'll say things like, I would, but it's just so hard. You know, it's just, it's just difficult. It's hard to follow God. And that's true. It is difficult. But Jesus never told us it was going to be easy. What did he say? If anyone's going to come after me, let him deny himself daily, pick up his cross and follow me. There's no sense of looking at a cross and saying, man, that's just fun. That's joyful. Oh, there's joy in following Christ. But it will be difficult. Or maybe things like, I just don't have enough time. I think this one's been the one that gets me probably more than any of them. Is I just got so much going on. I can't, oh, I just, oh, I can't hit this right now. So the tyranny of the urgent, that which is most pressing at the moment, I will, I will pursue that. And I'll get that, I'll, get, I'll, I'll do the things I need to do when I'm done. God doesn't fault them for living in houses, but what he does say is you need to do the things which matter the most. Well, to be honest with you, that, that looking at that, the message that the prophet gives is not a, in and of itself a real encouraging message because what we find is that it just kind of hammers us. It kind of hits us. 
And we, we can all look at ourselves and say there's times, whether we're there right now or times in the past or the propensity to do that in the future is going to be there. And so those things don't make us feel good. But here's the, here's the good news, okay? Here's where the gospel comes in. Sin causes us to be self-centered, but the gospel calls us to be Christ-centered. Sin causes us to be self-centered, but what the gospel does is it calls us to be Christ-centered. To be Christ-centered is to be obedient. John 14, 15 says, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Now, we understand that from the gospel, there's nothing we can do to earn God's love, nothing we can do to earn God's favor. There's nothing we can do to bring ourselves into a right standing with God. That is the gospel. God has done that for us in Christ. So then obedience is not trying to earn anything. Obedience is the outflow of a heart that understands, though I was blind, now I see. Though I was dead, I'm now alive. Because of what Christ has done for us on the cross, because he defeated sin and death, now we seek obedience for the great and wondrous God who has set us free. And that should be the heart cry of the people here. They had been in slavery and God rescued them. So what does it look like? Well, three reasons why I think it's important to be gospel-centered. First, gospel obedience pleases God. Again, the word of the prophets is there to consider their ways. Look, look at verse 7. It says, Thus said the Lord of hosts, Consider your ways. Go up to the hills, bring wood, and build the house that I might take pleasure in it. To know that we can do something that pleases God is an amazing thing. I think sometimes as Christians, we kind of get this idea that God expects us to be obedient and he's kind of indifferent to it when we do it. But notice what God says. God says, go up, get the wood, come down and build this house that I might take pleasure in it. It is an amazing thing for me to think that the creator of the universe, the one who made me and the one that redeemed me is not indifferent When I do things for him, it actually pleases him. There's a verse that I came across a few weeks ago in my my daily time with the Lord. It has just, it's amazed me. It's Psalm 11, 7. It says, for the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds and the upright shall behold his face. I just love that. The Lord loves righteous deeds. So that means that when we choose obedience and that when we go to follow God, he's not a cruel taskmaster who's just trying to beat us into submission, but he sets before us the way of life. And when we are obedient, it pleases the Lord. He loves our righteous deeds. And how much do we want to honor and to love our Savior, our God, our King, the one that we claim to worship continually? So that means when God has set something before us to do, anything that we put in way is we're robbing joy from God, as it were. So let us seek obedience in such a way to know the Lord loves it when we do righteous deeds. And let us please the Lord. But notice also that God says that when they do these things, they will, they will glorify God. Gospel obedience glorifies God. He tells them to do this. He said, that I might take pleasure in it and that I might be glorified. Now, we use this word glorified a lot. 
And, and you, you may know exactly what it means. But I've found over the years that I hear people and say, well, we need to glorify God. And so I just ask them a question. What does that mean to glorify God? And a lot of times I get this. And it's one of those words we kind of we use, we kind of throw out, but we're not exactly sure. Here's, here's how I think that our gospel obedience glorifies God. Um, okay, let me give an example, and then I'll tell you how it thinks. I just realized what I'm about to say, and, and I don't think this glorifies God. But all of us are, are familiar with either a TV show or a movie or something or a book where the villain is actually the hero. You know, it may be a movie where it's a thief is the main character of the movie. And the entire movie is set out to show how smart he is, how nobody can catch him, how everybody um, who is looking at him is just goofy. He's always one step ahead. He's great. He's got money. He's got the women. He's got everything. That show, that movie, that book is set up to glorify this thief, to make everything that he does and say as worthwhile, wonderful, and worthy of praise. That idea is what it means to glorify God. To live and set our life on such a trajectory in such a way that everything we do and say and think shows the world that God is truly amazing. That God is truly wonderful. So that means the way that we go to work that means the way that we treat our spouse, the way that we spend our money, the way that we spend our free time. All of these things should be done in such a way that we show the world how absolutely amazing God is. And one of the ways that happens is when we choose to be obedient, even when it goes against what our natural desires may be. So now if my sinful desires have me bent one way, but God's word says I should be living this way, if God is truly wonderful and God is truly amazing, then what I'm going to do is I'm going to choose him over whatever I might naturally do. And when I do that, I tell the world, God's more important to me than anything else. That's glorifying to God. And right now, if these people in the book of Haggai stop what they're doing and they drop everything and they go to the mountain and they get that wood and they bring it down and they begin building this, those people who had persecuted them, those people who were around them, those pagans who still kind of had their foot on them would see these people are more worried about God than they are anything else in their life. At this point, they weren't doing that, but this is what God says. Go do it. Show the nations that I'm worthy of worship that I'm worthy of living for, that I'm more important than anything else you can do. So gospel obedience pleases God. Gospel obedience glorifies God. And the very last thing is gospel obedience allows us to enjoy God's blessings. Notice what God says in uh, verse 9. It says, You looked for much, and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts? Because of my house that lies in ruins, while each of you busies itself Busies yourself with his own house. You see, what had happened was they, were, they wanted the things that God only could give. They wanted the crops. They wanted the rain. They wanted these things. They wanted to experience the blessings of God without pursuing God. And God, in his mercy, withheld all of that from them. 
so that they would understand that they cannot elevate the blessings of God over God himself. Because that's what they wanted. They wanted to live in their sinful disobedience and experience the blessings of God at the exact same time. And in a way that we don't often realize, God in his mercy withheld his blessings so that they would understand Truly experiencing and loving and savoring the blessings of God only come when we are savoring and experiencing and loving God himself. Because if God allows us to love his blessings more than him, he allows us to walk in idolatry. And what God is doing here is God is saying, I'm going to hold these back so you will understand that when you get everything from me, you really experience the blessings. You know, you can find ways to make your marriage better. There are secular ways to make you get along with people better. But are you truly going to experience the blessings of marriage outside of a devotion to the one who created it and designed it and who blessed it in the first place? You can find ways to be more successful at work and climb the ladder But all of the stuff you get or the prestige, does it really matter anything if God is not the center of your life? And we could come up with all kinds of examples. But what God wants is God wants to bless us. God wants us to experience the fullness of Him and the things that He gives. And when we're truly seeking Him, that's when we experience those things. Now, I'm not talking health, wealth, prosperity gospel. You do good stuff and God's like a cosmic vending machine where you put a quarter in and blessings come out. That's not what I'm saying. But what I'm saying is that God does love us as evidenced by the cross of Christ. That he would not leave us in our sin, but that he would come and make a way for us to be brought back to him. The book of Romans chapter 8 says, If he would not withhold his own son from us, how will he not also give us all things in him? God loves us. God does want us to be blessed with his presence and be blessed with his blessings. But he calls us to himself that we might experience those. So here's what I would ask you this morning. Three questions I'd like to close with. One... Is there something in your life that's keeping you from deeply pursuing Jesus? Is there a paneled house in your life? And I pointed out earlier that God didn't just say you shouldn't live in houses. God didn't didn't say anything to them about living in houses. Is that those houses had become idols in their life? Is there something in your life that's causing you from deeply pursuing Jesus? It could be anything from a job to a relationship to watching too much TV. I want to say, let us all consider our ways. Look deep down into our heart and say, Lord, is there anything that's causing me, that's keeping me from deeply pursuing you? And let us do as the people, as God called the people to do, to turn from that and turn back to God. Second question is this, is there something in your life that God's telling you to do. You see, for some of us, we know what it is that God wants us to do. Maybe it's that there's a new person who's moved in next to you, and you know that God wants you to build a relationship with them, and God wants you to share the gospel with them. 
And you know that God wants you to do that. And every time you see that person, it burns down deep in your heart. And you've become really good at just diagnosing it as heartburn and walking away. Could it be that God's calling you to do that? And this morning, would he be calling you to say, okay, it's time to take that step? Could it be that you've been sitting on the sidelines for a while, watching everybody else get in, watching everybody else serve, watching everybody else be a part of what's going on, what God's doing here at Northside? And could it be that this morning God's saying, it's time for you to get off the bench and into the game? Third question is this, when people look at your life, what would they say is most important? What would people say is most important in your life? Your job, your family, your hobbies? Or would people say what's most important to that person is Jesus? He just kind of radiates out of them. Can't get through the day without them saying something about Jesus. You know, the world may look at that as a negative thing. But is Jesus what's most important to you in your life? I want to pray for us all this morning. Um, And I want to encourage you that as I was uh, preparing and studying and looking over this, God was really really taking those, those questions and putting them deep into my heart. And uh, this morning I spent some time praying to the Lord and confessing some things and, and worshiping on my own. And so now I ask that you would consider the same thing. I'm going to close, uh, close us in prayer and uh, I'm going to have a song of decision, I guess. I'm not sure what to say there. Um, there'll be some pastors down front. If you need to pray, you need to pray with somebody, there'll be some pastors who can pray with you. Maybe even this morning. I, don't, I know very few of you in this room, so I don't even know where you are. But maybe even this morning, the reason why you can't say that Jesus is most important in your life is because the message of the cross has never impacted you. Maybe a story that you know, but you've never trusted what Jesus did on the cross and his resurrection from the dead to be what has brought you near to God. You've tried being a good person. You've tried buying a bigger Bible. You've tried coming to church more. You've tried lots of different things. But have you genuinely trusted Jesus with everything? Matthew 13, 44 says, The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, and a man finds it, and in his joy, he covers it up and goes, sells everything he has and buys the field. Is Jesus your treasure? And if not, maybe this morning is the morning that you say, I sell everything else so that Jesus can be my treasure. I'm going to pray for you. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the truth of your word. Thank you for the way that it does, like a sword pierce, dividing deep within us. And Lord, I pray that our our time together would not be a time where we are left simply feeling discouraged, but that we would know that there is hope for us in the gospel. There is hope for us to call. And Lord, in your mercy, you have called us to repent that we might experience you fully and live the life you have laid before us. And so, Lord, I pray this morning that even now, if there's anything in our hearts, Lord, that you will bring it to our minds, that we might turn from it, that we might love you and serve you, that you might be glorified in all we do. Father, we ask this. 
In the most wonderful and excellent name of Christ. Amen. Mm-hmm.